Welcome to Drilling Deep. I am your host, John Kingston, recording this as cold weather dips into the U.S., and the reaction in the oil market is pretty blah. It speaks well of the state of the market from the consumer perspective. There's plenty of natural gas and there's plenty of oil. But you need to drill to get either of those, and that's why we call the podcast Drilling Deep. We also have a guest of the week, and this week it's Maciek Lukowski from a company called Emoji. What you need to know now that is his company has a very interesting approach toward turning, turning hydrogen into a fuel of the future. And let's note that if there is going to be an energy transition in trucking, it is likely to have hydrogen as a main part of that moving Class A vehicles. One of the most conservative groups in the U.S. energy scene is the Energy Information Administration, which is an arm of the Department of, en uh, Department of Energy. Each month, it comes out with its short-term energy outlook, known shorthand for that as STEO. The one thing you should know, that if the market in the form of prices or production goes way, way higher, the EIA probably won't predict it. If it goes way, way lower, they probably won't predict that either. They take the current conditions and model some shifts that they see and come up with their forecasts. Safe to say, given that, they completely missed the surge in U.S. crude production in 2023. Let's recap how much of a surge that was. Pretty simple, really. The U.S. produced 12.2 million barrels per day of crude at the start of 2023 and 13.2 million barrels per day at the end of it. But let's not fault the EIA for missing that one. Everybody missed that one. Nobody saw it coming, even within the oil industry. But still, it is worthwhile to see what the EIA says about the EIA says about this year. You could argue that being conservative here would mean that the EIA might forecast a decrease in U.S. production on the ground that some of that big jump was a fluke and is not really sustainable. You could see a cautious output coming to that conclusion. That's not what the EIA did. It said that US, the U.S. would average 13.2 million barrels per day this year and rise to 13.4 million barrels per day in 2025. It cites increased well efficiency as a reason. But then it goes on to say that growth slows because of fewer active drilling rigs. The problem is that while there used to be a fairly tight correlation between the number of rigs in action and production, that has gone away, and it is because of that efficiency that the EIA mentioned. I had a text chat the other day with a friend, a former colleague, who wondered whether the big consolidation in the U.S. oil patch we've seen over the past months was going to result in U.S. lower production. I tend not to think so. There have been several big deals recently where a large, large company brought another big company that just wasn't quite as large, mostly for its operations in the Permian Basin in West Texas. It's been that Permian Basin that has been the key driver of this U.S. surge or this surge in U.S. production. And clearly, given the dollars that are being paid for these companies, some seriously large operators are betting that that's going to continue. Exxon, Exxon Mobil bet almost $60 billion on that future in its acquisition of Pioneer Natural Resources in October. There were a few, there were a few other things in the steel, as it is known. Of course, sticking to that conservative outlook, the EIA said it expects crude prices to be similar to 2023. I'm not sure what similar means in a year where crude was absolutely going to hit $100, according to conventional wisdom in September, and by the end of the year was solidly under 80. 
or earlier in the year when Brent, the world's key benchmark, was actually higher than it was at the end of the year. Yet, and that led OPEC plus countries, excuse me, that led OPEC plus countries and then Saudi Arabia to make big cuts in output. And yet by the end of the year, prices were even lower than they were when those cuts were implemented. This isn't new, but the steel also refers to new refinery capacity coming online this year worldwide as an important new trend. It's like the great rebalancing after COVID. The pandemic took some refineries offline permanently, but construction of their replacements was slowed by the virus. Now that construction is coming to an end and the world's going to have more of that needed refining capacity. The conservatism of the EIA is pretty much a constant. If they are wrong, then things go crazy either way. Which way will it be? I will say that the supply and demand forecast for the year, not just from the EIA, but from pretty much everybody, clearly point to more downside potential than upside potential. So far, even a war in the Middle East and hot shooting in a key, US, in a key global waterway hasn't been enough to boost prices significantly. Maybe being conservative is the right approach. Time to move on here now on Drilling Deep, as we always do. Last March, I attended the big Zero Week meeting in Houston, where I've been going to, uh, to visit that really since the mid-90s. The meeting used to be kind of nice and neat. Day one was oil day, day two was natural gas day, and day three was electric power day. The joke last March was that they should call the whole meeting Sierra Hydrogen Week, since there were so many panels, so much discussion about the potential for hydrogen as a fuel. Uh, as a fuel, though I don't like to call it a fuel because, in some ways, hydrogen is really just an energy carrier. You have to put energy into something where hydrogen is uh, contained, like water, like H two O, and you need to do that to extract the hydrogen molecules out, since hydrogen rarely. Uh, exists on its own in nature. So it is always bonded to something else, uh, the way, as I said, hydrogen is with H2O. At the Sierra Week meeting, I learned of a company called Emoji, which was doing some really interesting things about hydrogen. Of course, at this point, hydrogen is really so experimental that you could say that everything is interesting because everything's new. But fortunately for me, even though I was not able to meet with them at Sierra Week, they are based in New York, where I am, and I was able to go visit them a few weeks later after Sierra Week and find out they were up to. They've got an operation at the big Brooklyn Navy Yard in, obviously, Brooklyn, New York. I did an interview at that time with Emoji CEO and founder, Singon Wu. Today, we're going to speak to Maciek Lukowski. He's Amici's VP of Strategy and Business Development about the company and what it's got going on. So, Maciek, welcome to Drilling Deep. Thank you so much for having me, John. You can talk a lot better than I can to describe exactly what the Amogi, um, excuse me, a piece of Amogi emoji technology is. Yeah, happy to to give that introduction. So um, Amogi is the first company in the market that is providing um, a complete ammonia to power solution. Uh, and we use this, this solution to decarbonize um, sectors of transportation that typically would be considered hard to decarbonize, um, specifically maritime shipping and uh, heavy-duty trucking. Um, the system that we are developing can also be used for on-site power generation. Um, overall, we see ammonia as a truly cost and infrastructure advantaged uh, low-carbon fuel. 
Um, as you mentioned, um, hydrogen is a very interesting molecule because it can be produced in a way that uh, does not result in carbon emissions and it does not carry uh, carbon molecules. But it's also a fuel that's very difficult to transport and, and store. Um, ammonia offers an alternative to this. It's a way of carrying hydrogen and delivering it to the end user um, in a way that is makes it an energy dense liquid fuel that is much more um, affordable to transport and store and uh, which we have quite a lot of um, experience in, in within the industry. Um, ammonia has been used um, either directly as a fertilizer or to produce fertilizer uh, for more than 100 years. So we know how to deal with it as a molecule. Um, how energy is differentiated and way in which we take advantage of this is that we provide the very last element of this value chain. That is, we have found a way to take this low carbon ammonia and convert it into um, zero carbon electricity at the point of use. Yeah, let's 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 kind of review backward a little bit because I don't think I made that clear. Um, uh, ammonia is a combination of hydrogen and um, nitrogen, correct? And as as you know, it it has been used as a fertilizer for a long, long time. Uh, it is transported all over the world. Right now, at any given time, there are tankers out of the water transporting ammonia from one place to another, correct? Um, and so the hydrogen is there, and you've got to get it out. Now, there's two ways of doing it with ammonia. You can just combust the ammonia as is, but that has some problems, as I'll let you speak of, or you can crack it. You can crack it into hydrogen, and you can crack it into nitrogen. Why don't you talk about the two approaches, which one you do, and um, and why the other one has got some issues with it? Sure. So, as you mentioned, um, ammonia can be used as, as fuel, um, there are fundamentally two paths. Uh, one is the direct use of ammonia. Um, it's a somewhat challenged path because ammonia is not a very easy fuel to burn. Um, that is, it has a very low range of flammability, which means that you need to get the ratio of ammonia and air just right. If you do that, it's still... Um, is difficult to burn because it has a very low speed of flame propagation. So when the combustion process occurs, it occurs very slowly compared to other fuels. Um, lastly, when you do combust it, it results in higher NOx emissions uh, compared to um, other fuels. Um, some of these problems can be managed. For example, um, NOx emissions can be managed, and, and there are ways that are being proposed, for example, uh, how you can do it in maritime vessels. But the equivalent of a catalytic converter for a vessel like that is effectively size of the engine itself. Um, so we believe that there are ways in which to use ammonia directly, um, but the technology isn't quite there yet. Um, we have chosen an alternative path um, to using ammonia as fuel, and this is we don't combust it. Uh, we crack it. That is, we um, at 
elevated but still relatively low temperature and using catalyst, we decompose this ammonia into hydrogen and nitrogen. Um, nitrogen is an inert molecule. You can, you know, that's what air mainly consists of. So it can be simply released um, into the atmosphere without any negative consequences. And then hydrogen can be used um, in a way in which we can, we have experience with hydrogen. Uh, so um, Amogy in our first product that we're delivering to the market, we convert that hydrogen to electricity using fuel cells. Uh, but of course there are other alternative ways in which you can turn hydrogen into electricity um, that we can um, equally well um, use. So. You know, from our perspective, the the bottom line is that what we eventually use as fuel is, is still hydrogen, but we have a technology package that enables us to transport and store that hydrogen as an ammonia, which is much, much easier uh, logistically and much more affordable comparing to transporting and storing hydrogen as compressed hydrogen or liquid hydrogen. Yeah, let, let, let's note here, though, that, that your, your, your tool for this right now, that you've actually done some transportation with this. When I was down in Brooklyn, I saw a truck. I mean, it really was a Class A tractor uh, that had run on hydrogen that was obtained by cracking ammonia. I also saw, I believe, a drone that ran on hydrogen. Again, crack, and the cracker is on site, right? It's, it's within, if I remember right, it's within the the instrument itself, be it the drone or be it the truck. Um, and now your your big project, the big next thing, uh, is going to be a tugboat, correct? That's correct. Uh, and you're absolutely right. Uh, what we develop is a fully integrated system. That is a system in which you feed um, ammonia, and what you get as a product is, is electricity at a desired um, voltage. And you're also right about our technology path and the ways in which we demonstrated the technology. Um, we thought it's very important to, rather than just showcase a design, um, to show to people a tangible product that shows that this actually can be used, that this can operate in, in real-life transportation applications. Um, we started with a drone. Uh, back then, the company, I believe, had only about five or six people. Right now, we're a company of nearly 200 people. So we have evolved since over this period of about three years. Um, but our drone was a five kilowatt system. As you said, it was a highly miniaturized um, ammonia to power system placed on the top of the drone. What we're able to prove is that it extends the range of the drone significantly beyond what could be achieved with batteries. Um, from there, we wanted to scale the technology and demonstrate it in, in larger scale applications. So from the five kilowatt drone, we moved to 100 kilowatt um, tractor. Uh, we demonstrated at a farm in upstate New York. I think the interesting fact there is that the type of uh, ammonia that's being used at these farms as a fertilizer and hydrous ammonia is the same ammonia that we use as fuel. So it was quite convenient to use this in, a, in, a, uh, in this environment. From there, as you mentioned, we scaled it up even further um, to a class eight truck. 
it was a 300 kilowatt system. Um, and lastly, we, we want to bring this technology in a commercial form to maritime industry um, that has never been done before. Uh, maritime industry has um, pretty good consensus that ammonia will play a significant role in, in decarbonization of maritime shipping, but it hasn't been demonstrated yet. Um, so we set ourselves on a journey of demonstrating the first ammonia to power generation system uh, on board a vessel. Um, to that end, we actually have purchased a vessel uh, and we're in the process of installing our system uh, on that vessel. Uh, it's being done domestically as all of our previous projects and, and we're um, quite confident that this will be the world's first demonstration of ammonia as fuel in the maritime industry. Let's let's note here that the end the, the I guess we'll call it the engine um, on these things is essentially the same kind of engine, right? Uh, electric engine or electric motor that would run off batteries. It's just that the input, the electricity input, is not coming from a battery. It's coming from an electricity source coming off of a fuel cell. Correct. Uh, that's correct. And um, what's becoming more and more popular in the maritime industry is um, a what's usually a diesel-electric or diesel-electric hybrid system. And that's very similar to what you would see, for example, on a hybrid vehicle, where the wheels are being turned or propeller is being turned by an electric motor, and that's being powered by a device that generates electricity. And to that end, our system that generates electricity plugs in directly um, instead of um, engine connected to a generator. Right. Let's 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 talk about hydrogen in general. You know, um, it's not like there's anybody in charge of this, but the question becomes that as we produce more and more hydrogen, as the technology gets better, what is the best use of it? And you know, one one argument I've, I've heard is that the best place for hydrogen to be in terms of a, a large energy transition are in applications that are very difficult to have a different kind of uh, energy source. Uh, so, like, there's kind of an argument that. Every last bit of hydrogen we have, we should use in cement making or steel making because replacing energy, replacing the, the current energy sources in those areas is extremely difficult. Whereas in transportation, whether it's maritime or whatever, yeah, you can look to batteries as a possibility. Uh, you can look at, let's say, natural gas fueling. Well, you really can't do that as much with um as much with something like cement making or steel making. What would you say about that? Because you clearly, that's not the road you're going down. Yeah, so I think there's a, a ladder of applications that are more or less attractive uh, to where, for use with hydrogen. Um, what we're seeing is that for applications that we're targeting, um, there usually isn't a viable alternative to a liquid fuel. So I'll use um, maritime industry as, as an example. Um, now with um, passenger vehicles, uh, we have seen that these can be, in most cases, quite effectively uh, decarbonized using batteries. It's not as easy to do this for maritime, and that's because the distance of the journey is much longer. So what you're seeing is that not only the amount of batteries and the weight of batteries are, are becoming larger and larger, 
um, but that begins to cut into the cargo space. And, um, you know, if you look at, let's say, an extreme case of vessels that maybe, for example, transferring cargo between uh, US and Asia, um, that's not feasible with the current battery technology. Um, there are cases, for example, ferries operating on short routes where batteries can be uh, effectively used, and that has also been commercially demonstrated in many applications worldwide. Um, but for most maritime applications, you need highly energy-dense um, liquid fuel. Um, right now, this is heavy fuel oil, marine gas oil, or diesel in most cases, in some cases LNG. Um, but there's a clear need to decarbonize the maritime uh, transportation. And um, the fuels that are being proposed are primarily ammonia, methanol, um, in some cases um, liquid hydrogen or, or other hydrogen derivatives. Um, we have looked at this very closely, and uh, I think it's it's quite clear that ammonia has advantage not only in terms of cost, but also availability of the infrastructure. Ammonia is already available as a molecule in about 200 ports around the world. Um, it's advantage from a cost perspective, and it's, to a large extent, a, a global commodity rather than a fuel that's tied to um supply sites that are um, very specific to certain geographies. Oh, it is very much it is very much a world fuel, no doubt about it. There's no question there. Um, what is the energy density of uh, of I guess I'm looking for ammonia hydrogen? You know, yes, you you can you can bunker up a a cargo a, a container ship in Beijing or you know a, let's say a, a port like Shanghai, and you can sail it across the ocean essentially on you know one one load of bunker fuel. Do you think you're going to get to the point where you could do the same thing with hydrogen? It would be very challenging to do this with um, compressed hydrogen. It would be easier to do this with liquid hydrogen. But the challenge there is that liquefied hydrogen has to be stored at very, very deeply cryogenic temperatures, close to the absolute zero. And there isn't much industrial experience dealing with um liquids that are that cold. All right. So let, let, wait, I'm, I'm, I'm going to interrupt because I think I asked the question incorrectly. What is the energy density of ammonia? Um, so could you could you fill up in Shanghai a container ship with ammonia and would there be enough hydrogen content in there and by my extension energy content to take you across the ocean? That really is the question I should have asked. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and what's interesting is that if you look for maritime classification societies, the institutions that give the stamp of approval for deployment of certain technologies um, in maritime industry, uh, many of them predict that by 2040, ammonia will be by far the leading fuel uh, for maritime industry. So the energy density of ammonia is not an issue. It is less energy dense uh, than, for example, diesel. Uh, but it is more energy dense than even liquid hydrogen. Interesting. Okay. Let's ask. Uh, you know, we, we at, at that Zero Week meeting that I went to, uh, I wrote several stories about the Inflation Reduction Act 
and some of the tools in there to uh, and some of the tools in there to encourage hydrogen production. And one is a credit, I guess, uh, for for a green hydrogen, which can be shown to be produced by a completely renewable fuel like wind or solar. Um, it's a three dollar per, I guess, per kilogram credit, which really worked out to be about three dollars a gallon as well, if I remember. Um, the hydrogen, you the would you qualify for that? I mean, what is the sort of energy input into the cracking process? Do you would you consider the hydrogen that's coming out of your cracking process to be green hydrogen? Yeah, so we would benefit uh, from the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, the benefits would be indirectly captured by Amogis customers, and the way we think about this is the hydrogen production is being incentivized, and then good portion of hydrogen is being then turned into other products, including uh, ammonia. The way we produce ammonia, as you mentioned before, is simply by taking a um, molecule of hydrogen, or in this case, three molecules of hydrogen, and combining it with one molecule of nitrogen that's being um, extracted from, from the air. And that's using uh, an industrially proven process. That's... Uh, mm, that's how ammonia is being produced. Right. So, so, so the so the IRA credit would not go to you. It would go to the supplier of the ammonia. And did they did they produce the hydrogen using coal? Let's say. I mean, that's the most extreme case. Or did they use it? Or did they produce it using an electricity source that can be shown to be generated from wind or solar? Then they would get the the three dollar credit. Correct. Correct. So our customers would see this as a lower cost fuel. And what we're also seeing is that um, the Iron incentive for hydrogen production, as you mentioned, um, three dollars per kilogram, or in case of blue molecule, the forty-five uh, Q credit for storage of carbon underground—that's eighty-five dollars per ton of CO two stored. Both of these, depending on whether you pursue the green ammonia or blue ammonia route, both of them have um, significant impact on. Uh, cost reduction of, of the fuel. I'm going to ask one last question because we're running out of time. Uh, when is the Good Ship Hydrogen launch? Uh, I was there in April um, and talked to your CEO and was talking about the work getting done on the tugboat. Uh, it was going to kind of do its big test and ply its trade on the Hudson River. Where do we stand with that? Yeah, so we're, the uh, tugboat is in construction, and it's really exciting because we get to see updates uh, every every week now. Uh, we will have demonstration of the tugboat uh, this year, so it's it's extremely exciting, and um, I think we have a good line of sight uh, to the demonstration and. Um, if everything goes the way we plan, uh, then this will be the world's first demonstration of use of ammonia in the maritime industry, which we're um, really excited about. Very good. Well, it, it will be an exciting day. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing from hearing about it. We want to thank Maciek Lukowski. He is the uh, Vice President of Strategy Biz Business Development at Emoji. Uh, that's the way I pronounce it. I don't know. I heard. I think I heard you say Emoji. So we're, whatever it is, Emoji, Emoji. Tomato, tomato. It is working on an exciting hydrogen development down there in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. So, uh, thanks for joining us today on Drilling Deep. Thank you so much for having me. You've been watching Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freightcast family of podcasts from Freightways. You can find us on all the leading podcast platforms. If you're seeing our adorable faces, it's because you're watching us on YouTube. 
Uh, but if you just want to listen to us, you can go to plenty of places to do that. I've been your host, John Kingston, and please join us again. 